Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Y'all have no idea how excited I am uh, to have this conversation today with my friend, my brother, and social justice warrior, Jamala Taylor. Hello, Jamala. Hello. Good morning. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Of course. So, um, oh, we got so much good stuff to get into, but I'm going to start with you like I do all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Hmm, my labor of love. My labor of love is freedom. And that's broad, but also very specific. I'm sure we'll get into, uh, you know, incarceration, uh, my personal journey throughout the course. But um, yeah, I'm still moved and, and motivated to to work and act on behalf of the people I left behind and people like myself who've been released. Um, A brief overview, I served 31 years in state prison. Um, I got out as a result of laws changing in the state of California. Otherwise, I'd still be in there with a potential release date of 2053. And having said that, of course, I left thousands of people across California behind prison walls some of whom are eligible for the new laws, many of whom are not, those who have life without. And uh, yeah, so I'll go into the inner workings of it, but yeah, my labor of love is absolute freedom on behalf of currently and formerly incarcerated folk. I appreciate that so much. And um, within the last few months, um, I have experienced the newfound freedom that I had not experienced in my life. Then I have conversations with you and I am reminded of the very tangible physical nature of freedom that I have taken for granted my entire life. And I've been able to focus on emotional, spiritual, mental freedoms and the inner work that I'm doing. But I I really am excited to have this conversation um, about the fact that there are so many people who do not have their physical freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that is something that is talked about enough, at least in the circles that I'm talking. And so I really, really appreciate your contribution um, to our understanding and just sharing of your own journey. So, um, yeah, I usually ask at this point, like, where is this rooted for you? So you gave us that kind of overview. But to my average listener who it's possible that even if they have some proximity to someone who's been incarcerated before maybe not the kind of proximity that allows them to actually hear the actual stories and an and experience of the person who was there maybe it's someone distant so maybe let's just start there to to the average person out here who has no understanding what are some things that's important for us to know about incarceration first and foremost the criminalization of a generation of black and brown men and women. Important to say that. Um, And most importantly, to probably say young people. I was 18 years old when I stood before a judge and um, through his sentence, he told me that um, you are incapable of change ever. I'm putting you in a place where you will remain until you die. And most of my adult life, I lived with that reality from 18, to 49, which is when I was released, I lived with the reality that, you know, one day I was going to die in a concrete box, a cell on the floor, on a metal bunk, wherever the case may be, whether it be old age, murder, whatever the situation is. But um, yeah, so I was sentenced to 99 to life or triple life in 77 years, depending on how you do the math. And uh, in California at that time, uh, California just did not release people serving life. Whether you had 99 to life or one year to life, you were never getting out of a California prison. And this is something that governors were, you know, on record saying, 
they'll leave in a body bag or in a box. I mean, it was absolutely crystal clear. So when I got to prison as an 18-year-old, I behaved as you would expect a person, especially a young person with no hope to behave. I fell further and further in the prison culture and in gangs and and um, just the entire prison political thing. And uh, that was marked with drugs and violence and, and all of the things uh, you would expect go on, you know, in, um, in the criminal culture. And uh, but I elevated myself. I became, you know, better at the culture, more organized, more disciplined. And, um, you know, at that point, I had no hope of, of getting out. So my only hope of making my mark or being somebody in my mind's eye was uh, in that way. Those are the things that matter in that environment, how violent you can be, um, how rebellious you can be, um, how much intellect you have, but in the course of a lot of the wrong things that we shouldn't be pursuing. So I say the year 2000, I was in this so much in prison that I was removed from general population. The prison authorities had a policy where you were, if you were, perceived as being a part of what they consider a prison gang, you had to be housed in a place called Pelican Bay Security Housing Unit. Um, and it's like really a notorious place. It's actually in a, a concrete and metal cell with no window. So I was sent back there on an indeterminate basis and I sat there for the next 15 years. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just me. It was many men, black, brown, folks sent back there for 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And um, in 2013, you know, after going through all of the courts and everything we could do, we get out and um, we finally decided we would organize a hunger strike. So we created a hunger strike uh, headquartered from Pelican Bay. And keep in mind, there are no phones, con uh, no contact visits. Your visits are in a phone booth with plexiglass over a phone, heavily monitored video and audio. So communication was was a problem in putting it together, but eventually we overcome that. We overcame that, and what started in that small segment of a whole within a whole grew to thirty three thousand people across the state of California. It spread to Oregon. It spread to Arizona. I mean, you name it. It just kind of unleashed a wildfire across uh, prisons all across the country. So eventually. You know, the California prison system, the governor decided that um, they would repopulate us back in the general population. I mean, it was just so thoroughly, completely unjust. There was no way out. You had people who lived decades back there and actually died. It wasn't necessarily conduct based. It wasn't that you were guilty of an infraction. You murdered somebody. It was simply for being a member of what they considered a prison gang. Mm -hmm. You could be identified as a member for Black folk. Um, a particular tattoo or being in possession of George Jackson books, um, you know, or other people saying you were. So it was, you know, precarious at best in terms of the reasoning they used to justify keeping people back there for a lifetime. But that hunger strike really changed um, the penal system in California. So um, can I ask a question? I'm so already so moved and I don't want to get too because you're going to say so much stuff and be like, okay, now we'll go all the way back. <laughs> So did this mean that no one would then be sent to that part, the Pelican Bay part? Or did that mean how people, how it was determined that people would be sent there changed or both? All of the above. Okay. How they, you know, determine it. Um, and then there's an end date to it now. Nobody's sent up there and locked in a cell and they just forget about you anymore. That's over. Okay. There's an end date. You know, uh, under the laws that I came under, the rules or policies that I came up under, you know, the only way you could get out was participate in something called the debriefing process, which is effectively to get out. You got to put somebody else in. And first and foremost, that's like a death sentence. of death, so I can't. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you know, my thing is I got to be able to what good is getting out if you can't look yourself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. you know, just, uh, you know, we would call cats that that went that route, broken men. And that's something I never intend to be, a broken man. Um, and myself, along with, you know, dozens, 
hundreds of other men endured that for decades. And finally, in 2013, uh, the penal system decided that they would repopulate us to general population. I was uh, fortunate enough to get to Lancaster State Prison. And the irony in that is 20-something years before, when I had uh, came to prison, that was like the second prison. I, I actually opened that prison when it opened in the early 90s. And all these years later, I'm back to the very beginning. But prison had changed dramatically in the 15 years that I was in solitary. I mean, when I went to solitary in California prisons, there was no rehabilitation. Now it's called California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Back then, there was no R. It was just CDC. And pause, because I I'm I find myself interested, and you are painting a very, very vivid picture, but even more vividly, talk to us about what is solitary? Hmm. So, in general population, you can come out of your cell, oftentimes being out of your cell all day, walk the chow, fresh air, sunlight, you know, it's not a it's a restrictive environment still in a maximum security prison, but far less so than solitary. Solitary in Pelican Bay, and remember, Pelican Bay is the model. It's the, the high tech of the high tech. Um, there was a period in the 90s where systems uh, all across the country were in like an arms race. Who could build the most restrictive solitary confinement? The, mm. the mother of them all was the federal one, the ADX in uh, in Colorado. Then you get prison systems and they invite to come view it. And they come like, hey, we could build our own, but we can make it better. Better to them is more restrictive. So Pelican Bay, you're in a cell. It's complete concrete and metal. Nothing other than concrete and metal. The bed is concrete. The toilet sink, all of that's in the cell with you is metal. If you walk out of your cell to the left, two doors down, there's another door. There's a gun tower. He opens that door. You go outside. Outside is like a cell with no roof. So you can see straight up. You can't see anything laterally. Nothing. Um, in the area that this prison is located, is the sun never really comes out. But if it does, you won't be able to see it. Cells have no window. And uh, I got like 10 pair of glasses now. That's why. Because I spent so much time without the sun. In my opinion, that's why. And, it, you know, these are common ailments. And uh, it's very restrictive in the amount of people that you have in contact. Each pod has four cells on the bottom, four on the top. And um, that's pretty much all you have in contact with. And it's it's quiet. It's sterile. It's, it's almost like a hospital. You can sit on your bunk and whisper. And, you know, if you're talking to yourself, somebody in the pod might be able to hear you. So the, the only real serious communication we had was um, you can go to the yard and talk down into the drain. And um, you don't know who the drain is connected to, but it's, you know, somebody eventually would answer and, and that's your conversation. Um, yeah, no phone calls. And it's located in such a remote part of California, right between the Oregon border. Some of the most beautiful country on the planet that you'll never get to see if you're in the shoe. And um, yeah, it's just thoroughly restricted. The mail, their big thing is communication. They they feel that the people back here are not only members of particular prison gangs, but leaders in those gangs. So their thing is, we got to make sure these people can't communicate. So you might send a letter out and it might not arrive for a month because they're dealing around with it. Or you might receive one and it might not. It's just restrictive in every way that it can be restrictive. It's mm -hmm. a constant, quiet pressure placed on people. And it wasn't uncommon for people to go crazy. I mean, just completely lose their mind. You could... I've ran into people who in 90 days went from as conversing as me and you to spreading feces over their body and screaming uncontrolled, just broke. Yeah. So I'm going to pause us here <laughs> and just allow my nervous system to have its reaction to that. <clears throat> I feel tearful. I feel hurt. I feel, um, As hard as it is to hear, I cannot even begin to fathom living it. And um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, you talked about when you first arrived in prison as an 18-year-old, who I just for context want to say was a young man who still had seven years before his brain was completely developed. Um, you arrive into an environment that in some ways 
is not unlike any other environment. And what I mean by that is, as a human being, whatever environment we're in, our brain's top three priorities remain the same. Keep you alive, keep you safe, and help you avoid pain. It is only after those three things are accomplished can we move on to other things. And so when I think about the endless amount of environments that a person can find themselves in, the brain's priorities don't change and the role of the nervous system in, in aiding those things don't change. So when you said, you know, you behave the way you would imagine a young man, that makes so much sense to me. You go into an environment and it automatically becomes, I got to live, right? I got to stay alive. I got to survive and I got to endure as little pain as possible. And so in some regards, I have so much gratitude for you and millions of incarcerated brothers and sisters whose nervous systems and brains said, I got to do what I got to do to survive. Even if those things in a different environment, you would never have even considered. You, you did what was available to you to stay alive. And hearing the conditions, I just, my whole body is just going through some things um, because it's inhumane. It is. It is completely and utterly inhumane and to know that you were told before your brain even finished developing that you were incapable of change and how many other people have been told that and believe that as a reality then you're putting into an environment that only reflects to you what you were told you are yeah. it it just yeah so thank you for allowing me to pause on my behalf and I would imagine other <laughs> listeners just be like take that in and to know that that I, I can't wrap my mind around sending someone away in that environment until dot 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 and that that existed for so long so okay well let me share the other side of it especially okay. military confinement. They built this place. They constructed this place out of just the depths of the blackest hearts to, to, to harm, to break, to alter, to sever. From that, and I told, when I went up in front of the commissioner, in front of the board of parole hearings for, for parole, and I described the experience as the blessing and the curse, I don't recommend being in solitary confinement for anybody but I grew in ways I never thought possible. I mean, it's like that diamond under that constant, constant pressure, emotional pressure, intellectual pressure, mental pressure, psychological pressure, 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 pressure. Some broke. The largest amount of us did not. And I'm better for it today. Some of the things I learned in that environment, I had drilled into me like discipline and organization. Those things are transferable to where I am today. Without those things, I wouldn't be here. So the experience were terrible, but I love to to think we kind of took it and and weaponized it against the system. <laughs> and now so many of us are, are activists or social warriors or are 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 voices for the people we left behind. And uh in large part it has to do with that. So I don't I don't wholly regret that time. I wouldn't be who I am today if I did. Mm. The ability to organize on the level that y'all did being in the most restrictive of restrictive of restrictive environment is mind-blowing <laughs> right so I mean can you talk about that a little bit like that that's just phenomenal so I don't even know what my question is just tell me more <laughs> It's a testimony to humanity, to the to the human spirit, a need to instinctively rebel against injustice. Mm. We're very much uh, subjected to systemic injustice. It was just absolutely 
thoroughly unfair and you have to swallow it every single day because at the end of the day for many many years there was nothing we can do about it until we did and the beauty of it is and i know you know the the system itself hates this to the very core california prison systems are largely based on race the people who when it came to the hunger strike we stood shoulder to shoulder with are traditionally people who we were at their necks and they were at ours murder and mayhem um and all that was put aside to make this happen and that was the beauty after uh the hunger strike or, or as it neared its conclusion another thing that that was born from it is something called the end of hostilities agreement so all of the major factions which were headquartered right there came together like look we're gonna stop this historical nonsense the stuff we've been involved in since the 50s in particular black and brown people a little more difficult to 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 kind of reconcile with the white folks because many of those were you know Aryan brotherhood and it, that comes with ideology behind it but even with them we kind of found a middle ground and that's the only way this happened and that's the that's the beauty of it that is the absolute beauty of it. It didn't just change our plight. It changed California prison systems. So now, as I spoke to you earlier, when I went to, to a security housing unit or, or to SHU, California, there was nothing rehabilitative about it. They didn't even play at it. It was just war, murder, people getting shot and stabbed every single day. That was the norm. When I got out, the laws had changed. In California, they have something called the youth offender laws, which I benefited off, which state that uh, the brain is not fully formed until you're 26 years old. So if you committed a crime way back when, prior to your 26th birthday, and you had life, you could go before the board and then have an opportunity to demonstrate your rehabilitation. And, um, you know, eventually I did that. And the first time I was denied, of course, because being in the hole all that time, I, I had no ability to take the classes they want you to take or, I mean, this whole thing was foreign to me. But, um, that's ultimately how I got out. And they made one exception to that law. There's one class of people who are not eligible for that or who haven't been in the past. And those who were sentenced to life without. So you could have the same crime. You could have, you know, a life sentence, but this person has a without. Their brain wasn't uh, established at 18 years old any more than yours is, but the law made an exception for that. And that's what I spoke to earlier. The people, you know, I left behind with those really on the top of the ladder because a lot of times they don't have access to these um, these means of getting regaining their freedom. Mm -hmm. When you when you all when you left Pelican Bay and you were repopulated into the general population, what was it like after spending fifth? 15 years I mean that I like I'm, I I am still grappling with trying to connect with like the 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 gravity of this 15 years in that environment to then one day go back to general population what was that transition like for you great question spectacular question you hit it right on the head with that and I mean it it was really an incredible moment. I can, there was no preparation. You go back to nearly no contact with other human beings till you're right in the middle of a thousand human beings. And it was, I can remember being in my cell, you know, in the back of the cell with all the lights turned on because I was overwhelmed with noise, with movement. I'm not used to people running by the cell. I'm not used to keys, hearing people on the telephone screaming. You got none of that in solitary confinement. And all of a sudden you got all of that. I can remember my first time on the yard and I'm walking around the track and somebody comes running by me and I'm almost in a combat position because I haven't been in the same room with another living soul in 15 years. So I was thoroughly, thoroughly, completely overwhelmed. You know that saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. Socialization, my ability to socialize. I remember, you know, prior to going to the shoe, you know, I could... You know, I, I, I pulled people to me. I, I was a, a I wouldn't say I was a people person because there's a certain way you got to conduct yourself. But I, I knew how to how to connect with people, how to reach out. And that was gone. I mean, the simplest, the simplest of things, just coming up to somebody saying hi. Now you have a new element. Now you got free people in prison. Remember, I told you everything had changed. So now you got organizations and volunteers walking around and I really don't know how to talk to them. Mm -hmm. So I signed up for a class. Um, inside garden program. It just happened to be on the 
wall, a sign-up list, and I saw it, and it said gardening, and I knew that meant soil. And remember, in solitary, you're not going to see a single blade of grass, a tree, soil, nothing. It's metal and concrete. So I just wanted to put my hand in some dirt. So I signed up, and that's the gift that keeps on giving. Best move I ever made in my life. Everything that's good in my life now is connected to me signing that paper for the Inside Garden Program. I went to the class and it started me on my path to uh, being able to socialize. It was a smaller setting. You know, it was in a garden. We had access to um, a, a greenhouse. Um, was in disrepair, but it was ours. Um, and I just kind of started to come out of my shell. And I started hearing other people in the class, you know, talk about their histories, their past, their struggles, their feelings. And this was like unheard of to me. This is prison. We don't do that. This is not the language. In. We know, you know, violence and hate, but love and hurt and pain, being able to articulate that to other people, that's that's weakness <sighs> until it wasn't. And they modeled it for me and I began to adapt it. And, and why that's so significant and people are probably asking, well, what the hell does gardening have to do with, you know, prison? Well, what it did was it put me in a position to be able to then move forward classes and with like my involvement to gangs, criminal gangs anonymous my addiction to drugs years and years before that was still, you know, papered over, hadn't been dealt with. I needed to be in those settings and deal with that. Prior to this gardening class, I would have never been able to sit in those spaces, let alone thrive. So I went from being in those spaces to eventually teaching those spaces, facilitating those curriculums. And all of this born from one, my time in solitary, but two, that first sign-up sheet inside garden program. And today I work for them. And today you work for them. Uh, so thank you, because now I feel like my nervous system is <laughs> starting to regulate a little bit. Um, oh my God, Jamal, I just love you so much. And I appreciate you for sharing so much of your story. I I just want to like, um, I was able to articulate it's inhumane. Um, and that, those were the only words I could could muster at the time and how my nervous system was reacting. But now just... When we truly understand that connection is not optional for us as human beings, mm -hmm. we can truly understand the impact of solitary confinement. When we understand that we are hardwired to be in connection with earth, the sun, the air, all the elements, other living beings, then we can truly start to understand the impact of solitary confinement. And we can take that from what I would consider a very extreme example in what you've shared about being in Pelican Bay, all the way to demanding that your toddler go to timeout in their room by themselves and everything in between. When we begin to understand that the message of you have offended or you have done something wrong, automatically being equated with and you do not deserve to be in connection with me or anyone else the damage that we do if this can start to help people understand that the silent treatment that you're doing with your kids and your partner and your you know your co-workers while it might make you feel a certain way or give you that distance you need it's also communicating something if we can learn to move through conflict and division without it having to mean isolation, that's when true repair starts to happen. And so I have, um, what are they called? Uh, light blocking curtains in my bedroom because I don't want to wake up with the sun. I want to wake up when I wake up <laughs> and how... I can go from this room that has three windows but are covered with a curtain and go into my bathroom that has a, a window in the morning and feel like, ooh, that's a lot. And that's just me having slept in a dark room, but all of my other senses available to me. I cannot even imagine with no preparation for your nervous system, for anything, for you to just be like, oh, here you go. So to hear the overwhelm, it makes so much sense. How long was it from your reintroduction to general population to signing up 
for the gardening program was it would you say maybe two weeks okay I mean it came quickly mm-hmm. you know, ability to sign up for it and it was just as impactful and um yeah I, I don't think I'm unique in this way I think it really affected most of us getting out after all those terms in that way it was a, another form of trauma but what I can say about the experience is and I kind of like to you know, feel like out of all this negativity came some bright lights. And one of the bright lights is years later, when I was released from prison, I kind of repeated that. I've been gone from society for 31 years. And all of a sudden, bing, I'm back in society now. So I kind of drew from that experience of getting out of solitary to general populations from getting out of prison to society. And believe me, it was every bit as traumatic in terms of the changes of society. I recall getting all of this food stuff that, you know, in my mind's eye, I'm make one of the meals mama used to make for me. And I'm good to go. I'm in a transitional home. And then it dawns on me. I don't know how to work the stove or the microwave. I know how to open the refrigerator to do it. But beyond that, I'm lost. When I went in Walmart for the first time, I damn near passed out from being disoriented. Not from the amount of people, the amount of stuff. When you go to a prison commissary and you say, let me get some mustard, they give you a thing of mustard. When you go to Walmart, it's 30,000 mustards. You got to choose. As a 49-year-old man, I hadn't chosen too much of anything over the course of my adulthood. It was all chosen for me. Now everything is my choice. And it was completely overwhelming. But there was also beauty in it. I, I, I used to call my mentor every single day. And uh, she brought me in the inside garden. In fact, I met her when I was on the inside. And she, um, you know, I would tell her about the beautiful struggle. That's what I would call it. And that's not original. My favorite rapper, Mozzie, but that's another story. But, you know, to me, the beautiful struggle was, you know, it was a struggle of getting reacclimated. Sometimes you felt a certain way, not knowing or figuring out or, or learning and retaining because it was so much coming in. But there was beauty in wonder. Mm. Turning that stove on for the first time, you would have thought I was an eight-year-old kid. I mean, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. It was a, and I experienced that for my first few months out every single day, eight, 19 times. Think about the last time you were amazed. You were in a state of wonder. Now, imagine being that all day for months. And that's what I tell people getting out now. And I work in the reentry field. So I deal with people like myself. Enjoy this time. There's yeah. beauty. Mm-hmm. The last time I was in awe. Wow, that's beautiful. So I'm going to take a pause right here um, and just tell you all about Lilac and Indigo. So Lilac and Indigo is a company that nourishes bodies, spirits, and our minds through creativity. Uh, The founder of Lilac and Indigo is Kara Michelle Pearson, who also happens to be a really great friend of mine. But I just wanted to shout out and tell you all that as we are moving towards uh, the new year or whenever you listen to this, knowing that you can have something right in front of you that aids not only your creativity, but your mindfulness and nourishment. So she provides services like mindful creativity kits. She does well, uh, pop-up wellness rooms uh, if you're hosting an event. And she also has guided meditation experiences that can be in-person or virtual. So I am highly, highly, highly encouraging you to head over to lilacandindigo.com. That uh, link will be in our show notes. And if you decide that you want to get some of her services, use the special code LOLPOD. That's L-O-L-P-O-D to get a special discount. So Jamala, (laughs) a question that is like really popping up in my mind right now. Um, Have you ever seen Shawshank Redemption? I have. That would be the closest experience that I would have like to see this process of reentry. How realistic is that movie to what might have, well, you can only speak from your experience, but to the general experience that you had? Mm, very, very different because the day and age is just different. I mean, technology changed everything. Mm. I literally grew up in an age where everybody had a bright yellow rotary phone in the kitchen with a hella long cord that they could walk all around the house with you know what I mean? and you know I as a teenager it was beepers and now I get out in the cell phones and and just all of this stuff and everything mm-hmm. 
right here and and the world moves at a tempo that's like blind in speed and and all of the personal things have gone by the wayside writing letters and even talking now is you know a, a victim of texting you know what i mean so the world just absolutely changed but if you just think about the you know just the basic fundamental parts of reentry first and foremost what do you need well from a document standpoint you need your birth certificate your social security card and some form of id california drivers or state driver's license or id or whatever the situation is after 31 years i didn't have none of that you can't re-enter society without that so when I was inside on my way out, I'd be talking to my moms about the jobs I was going to apply for, right? So in my mind's eye, I'm going in all these businesses, filling out applications. And that stuff is online. Nobody does that now. Nobody has paper, let alone can you come in and fill out an application? You got to be able to do that online, mm-hmm. which means you have to be able to navigate the internet. If you miss the technology age, of course, you can't do that. So there's all kind of low-tech, high-tech hurdles. The one thing I can say in this state, and I speak very specifically because I know people in other states, particularly Southern states where things really haven't changed, but the mentality in California as a formerly incarcerated person, uh, you know, with experiences in solitary confinement and as a lifer, my voice has value. That's not something I have to hide. A generation ago, that's something you had a ceiling. Now, unfortunately, parole is still there. When I first got out, you know, I worked in a warehouse. And I worked um, 10 hours a day, six days a week in the refrigerated side, 34 degrees all day. Terrible work, absolutely terrible work, but it was essential to where I am now. It It was incredibly impactful and important. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you the lesson that I learned from that. You ready for it? I'm ready. The lesson is I don't wanna work in the warehouse. (laughs) Come on. Ever again. I'm not going to do this kind of work. My last day doing it, when I left the transitional house and I moved to my own home, um, I gave away my my thermos, my lunch bag, because I don't intend to do that again. (laughs) But what did that do? That got me to thinking, well, look, I'm 49, 50 years old. I I can't start over as as an 18-year-old, right? So whatever I I have to do, I have to pick something that's going to pay dividends, that's going to impact me relatively soon. So I start thinking of it in terms of five-year plan. So what are the one of the few things in this society that can do that? Education. I had taken college courses inside. So I transferred to Cal State Fullerton through my job inside Garden. One of the things we do is connect people to higher ed, and they help me connect through equity programs on campus. And I actually got enrolled. So I'm in the online sociology program. So what that's going to do is in five years, the trajectory of my life changes, right? I won't have to even consider working in a, in a warehouse ever again. And I can really do something that I want to do. Sociology lends itself to what I do now. So I started off as a reentry coordinator within Inside Garden. I was working five hours a week. So about six months ago, I got a promotion. So now I'm the reentry manager. So I lead the reentry arm. And the entire staff is formerly incarcerated in the reentry side. And this is what we do. And I'm able to do that. I'm able to, to give the things that I once consumed. And there's incredible beauty in that. And I get paid for it. Can you imagine that? Yeah, right? Man. So I have an, a curiosity around um, relationships. So that's broad. You can take it anywhere you want. But some of the curiosities are, um, were you able to maintain any outside relationships? I mean, when I think about um, within our family, we have an incarcerated relative um, that we're able to visit and things like that. And and sometimes the complexity of all of that, COVID came and disrupted things, but there's there is there is no, it's effortful (laughs) maintaining those relationships. But then I think about the 15 years in solitary and what that meant for maintaining those. And then what did that look like when you got out? But then also how, how would you define how you navigated relationships inside and what is the impact of those inside relationships now that you've gotten out, if that makes sense? It does. Well, in terms of the outside relationships, I have a twin sister. Um, I didn't know that. A unique case study. When I was going away to prison, she was going away to college. So today she's a teacher and she has two twin daughters, 18 year olds. She had twins too. And of course I have my mom. I grew up in a single family home and they were there for me every step of the way. 
the extended family was in the background, but you know, they were there. If I if I needed to reach out for something, they were there for that. But it was basically moms and sister on the tip of the spear. So pause. As a mama of twins, <laughs> I you know, my intrigue is like, whoa. And that parallel when you were going off to prison, she was going off to college. And and just my my twins are fraternal, but you shared a womb. <laughs> so that is a unique thing, no matter what the relationship did outside of that. What was, yeah, having, and are, is, are you the only two siblings? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't even know if there's a question around that. I just needed to pause and allow myself to be like, wow, you're, you're a twin. And I, I witness the twin bond being something I know I've never experienced. Um, yeah, did that have a particular impact on you being a twin? Yeah, it did. And I think, you know, one of the things that I didn't understand early on and really for much of my incarceration was how much collateral damage there is associated with crime, consequence, and prison. We're 18 years old. We have the same general group of friends I commit horrible crimes, go to prison. She's left out there to answer the questions. Mm-hmm. Why? All of, she has a brother one minute and the next minute not. And I didn't really acknowledge those things or think about those things. There's a certain selfishness that comes with addiction. And I'm not just talking about drug addiction, but there is a such thing as addiction to the criminal lifestyle. And I was very much addicted to that. And there's a selfishness that comes with all addiction where you only see things through the prism of your own personal interest. Shit, I'm doing the time. You know, they free. I've come, you know, to see, to understand the damage I inflicted, you know, um, to the people closest to me. There was damage and there was trauma in that too. So that was probably the greatest effect. In terms of my nieces, my twin nieces, you know, I didn't meet them until they were teenagers. They were born while I was in solitary and this is too far, you know, for them to be coming. So I met them for the first time as uh, as teenagers in the visiting room when I got down to Lancaster. And uh, yeah, it was a great thing. And I see them now and I kind of parallel their thing to, to my sisters and I can see the, the twinship in it and it's good to be able to kind of live through that you know these are some of the moments at the time in their life now is the time that me and my sister were separated yeah. so it was forward to be able to see what it could have been what it should have been and when how long have you been out i got out december 30th 2020 wow yep. in so, the grand scheme of things that feels so new <laughs> it does. you know and you you got out in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, wow. Okay. And and so you had spent 30 years navigating inside relationships. Can you talk about that a little bit and then the impact of that since being out? I've got, you know, there's so much talent and beauty and potential behind those walls. It's just absolutely insane. I mean, there are people behind those walls that I could have living my home around my family right now with that I just know are completely different than who they were at the time they committed their crime decades ago and uh in terms of um I mean you got guys in there designing curriculums um in the run-up to my board and getting prepared for board you know I adopted this ideology that I got from mentors inside they said if if opportunities don't exist create them the energy you would otherwise use to to moan and cry and whine about it, create them. And ultimately, that's how we got ourselves out of prison. The board wanted us to concentrate on certain areas. Hey, let's read a book and design a, a curriculum. And we'll have this particular class on the yard. And 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 those relationships were submitted in that. A lot of, a lot of these cats are, are, are brothers that I kind of transformed alongside or transformed because of. One of the first classes I went to, there was a guy in the class and uh you know i knew him as as bam and i knew him years ago in juvenile hall so he had been in probably two or three years before you know i had been in on this particular sentence he, he came to prison as a as a juvenile and um i remember we were in the halls and he was just like straight up ganged out so his demeanor all these years later was so different 
than what I remember. Look was exactly the same. Age hadn't touched him. I couldn't reconcile the two. I was like, nah, that ain't him. It just had a look. Because he just acted so different. It can't be him. I heard him talk in a class and he stood up and he articulated himself. He articulated his feelings, his emotions. And this was just completely different than who I remember. But he like became my role model. I want to be able to do that. Mm. That was a significant step. And he's one of my very good friends today. He's out. He's been out. He got out probably a couple of years before me. And I have uh, several of those relationships inside and out. Core groups of dudes who we really changed our lives together. Mm. It, it's a, it sounds like a very unique brotherhood it is. that you're experiencing. I, so I would imagine that the way you described your entry into prison is the way a lot of young men come in and does there is there like a dividing line along age is you know like I guess what I'm thinking is age don't make you wise (laughs) you know so there are older people doing the things they were doing when they were younger youth doesn't make you non-wise right but did you find that there was a level of maturation that kind of divided the space based on age that the young young guys were kind of in the culture doing the best they could to survive with the skills they had and then there was like another group or was it kind of intermingled it was kind of intermingled at that time it just wasn't a lot of rehabilitative options in prison everything was just I mean, just it was just like just as horrible as horrible could horrible could be in terms of violence and victimization. It was just a bunch of hopeless cats trapped in this place they couldn't live and they couldn't leave in just small, small spaces. So it was just generally negative all the way around. And the thing about California prison at the time I went, you know, there was a high profile case with a, a parolee out here who committed a, a heinous murder. And that kind of galvanized the political class to this tough on crime thing. And they changed all the laws in California's uh, prisons in the California prison system today. It's not uncommon to find somebody that committed a crime that carried a five year sentence, but they ended up getting 50 years with 40 years in, in enhancements for various things, <laughs> or they came with the three strikes law and, you know, you got dudes getting their third strike, a life sentence for stealing video games or stealing a pizza. So it was like the criminalization of a generation of young people. So the average age of people in California prisons went from probably 35, 40 to 20, 21 with astronomical sentences. So you're dealing with a bunch of similarly situated dudes who are wild as all get out, have very little direction. They, there's not a lot of wisdom and experience to lean into. And um, and prison was an absolute reflection of that. And so, yes, they didn't have a prefrontal cortex developed. They didn't have direction. They also didn't have regulation. Yep, that's true. So um, I've talked about this many times. Uh, <laughs> when they say energy is contagious, when you... Yes, you walk into a space with one other person and that person is highly dysregulated. If you are not solid in your regulation, you will begin to become dysregulated. On the converse, on the opposite side of that, if you are solid in your regulation, you can get within six feet of that person and you can help their nervous system match yours and you can help them to regulate. It's called co-regulation, co-dysregulation. And so... I think any of us can imagine a time when we walked into whatever, a bank, a convenience store, and somebody was highly stressing and you just start to feel yourself going, well, why am I starting to get stressed? It's not even about me, right? Um, it happens with our children, when, ah, right? Now imagine being placed in small quarters with a whole bunch of people who are dysregulated. And the only avenues they have to find, to release or execute the fight and flight is to fight, right? Yeah. There, There is no other option to doing this when your flea kicks in, but you know you can't go nowhere and the body is demanding movement from you. And so the, these systems are set up to fail. They are yeah. set up to dehumanize and then go, see, this is why they need to be in here. N- no, you, <laughs> you, it's, 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 it's this, 
<laughs> huge social experiment that has cost people so much of their lives. And I just don't think that many of us truly understand um, the impact that this, that the whole system has. And so I'd love for this to transition to, I know you work with Inside Garden, but can you tell us a little more about the work that Inside Garden does, but also just work that you're doing, um, yeah, on the other side of this thing? Well, Inside Garden started 20 years ago. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary. And it started 20 years ago in San Quentin. A lady who was an avid gardener going into San Quentin and wanted to share it. So today we're in 10 prisons across California, including all three women's prisons. Um, we have an um, uh, environmental curriculum that's made up of four parts, four arcs. Uh, it's a year-long curriculum that operates inside of these prisons, uh, the last phase being reentry. So it's in part bringing green spaces to intentionally desolate environments, and prisons are. Most prisons, they don't have soil. You can use that to soft sand and hide, hide things under. They don't have trees. The gun towers need to be able to see you. So you literally have people going decades in maximum security prisons without being subjected to these things. And we found that, you know, bringing these things back, giving people um, the opportunity to put their hands in something as simple as good soil can be therapeutic, can be transformative. It most certainly was for me. Um, during the pandemic, uh, California prisons, as with every state, shut down so access to the various groups going in completely uh came to a standstill a big part of our model is based on trust the trust that we develop using those classes and that curriculum with our participants and we didn't want to let that go we didn't feel like we could be at our best without that so we took our in-person curriculum and just within our company with no practice no expertise we transformed it to a correspondence course um, curriculum. And uh, so we re-engaged our people during the course of the pandemic. We were able to maintain those lines. But California went through a stage because of the courts uh, intervening and telling them they had to reduce population, like all prisons, jam-packed. So they ended up releasing 8,000 people with no plan to what these people would do beyond the gate. And from that um, came our re-entry arm. And uh, our reentry arm, and I'm currently the reentry manager. I started off as a reentry coordinator. Um, all of the reentry coordinators, everybody in the reentry arm is formerly incarcerated. And we provide services like uh, gate pickups, meet people at the gates and take them home or to their transitional home, uh, cell phones, including instructions, take people to their first meal before we take them where they're going to go, uh, system navigation. Remember, uh, compounded with the technology barriers during the pandemic. You couldn't go inside of like state businesses, state buildings and the DMV and all of that stuff. So you really had to know how to operate the Internet. And um, so we provide people with that kind of system navigation, um, job referrals. Um, we have relationships with uh, equity groups on campus like Project Rebound. That's exactly the equity group that I'm a part of at Cal State Fullerton. And um, yeah, we connect people with higher education, with jobs. We have a Thursday night uh, healing circle, which I facilitate along with my colleague. And um, it's like a support group for our um, participants who've been released. So there's never really any end to, to our care for our people. They're always attached as long as they want to be. And we do everything we can do to ensure that, you know, they have a, the, the smoothest reentry as possible. Mm. I hear the services, but what I hear more is relationship. Oh, it's relational without question. That mm -hmm. upon leaving, there is a human there to pick them up. Yep. Someone who, who for real gets it. It's not me picking them up. <laughs> and, and hey, I can drive. I, I, I'm, I'm relational, but to know that they're being picked up by somebody who has had an experience and, 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 and how that can diminish the things like shame, that um, initial wave of shame is your exit. I, it just, it's beautiful. And I, I think about um, one of my biggest takeaways that I know intellectually, I, I've thought this before spending this time with you, but what my body feels so much right now is that um, 
there are human beings behind those walls. There are human beings behind those walls and how quickly um, oppressive systems only work through dehumanization. All of them. There is a dehumanization. There is a hierarchy of humanity that must exist. A hierarchy of life because it's not just humans. And, and, and when there is a hierarchy where a person can become less of a person, then all of the oppressive systems that operate can function. And how easy it is to never have to drive by. Prisons are usually in relatively remote areas. Um, so you're not just unless you live very rurally having to pass it. So most people can just forget and and just make assumptions about what are happening in those walls. But I I that is my greatest takeaway today. And for that I'm tremendously grateful for you. There are human beings behind those walls and not just people who are worthy of love and connection not just from the people that they're related to or that they knew when they were not behind those walls so I I really thank you for that Jamala is there anything I didn't ask or anything we didn't get to talk about that would be fundamentally missing from this conversation if we didn't get a chance to talk about it well, to be to piggyback on your last thought, you know, I, I definitely want to give voice to the fact that there are people who are capable, people behind the walls who are capable of tremendous contributions to society. I'm not talking about just people getting out because it's the right thing to do, and I believe it is. I'm talking about people who are capable of furthering our communal goals people who have contributions to make and I'm surrounded by them every single day you know the the beauty in my story in terms of um you know working in 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 reentry and and being in college and having a little suggest success I've enjoyed is it is not unique I have a platform to share it but I know dozens of people who've done decades and are in law school or, you know, um, starting their own businesses. They're contributing. There's so much talent and wisdom behind those walls. It's in the interest of society to kind of bring these people home, especially those people with life without, giving them an opportunity to make their cases for rehabilitation, to demonstrate to the world that they truly can contribute and they are no longer a threat to anybody. So I, I just really encourage people to think about our brothers and sisters still behind the wall and for no other reason than a quirk in the law or not eligible for the relief that people like myself have, have enjoyed. But they do fit up under that science. It applies to them and uh, they should be able to avail themselves of the opportunity. So please keep those people in mind. Absolutely. And um, I, I 100% know that um, this will be awareness building for some listeners. I think it'll be extremely validating for others. When you talked about the impact of your incarceration on your family, I know that's going to touch some people to feel seen in that moment. Um, yeah, I, I just love you so much. And um, as as a human, as a person, um as a fellow sojourner um and so i i really really appreciate your time with us if folks are interested in whatever maybe it's um the inside garden or maybe it's just to contact you or you know want to know how they can further support how can people reach out and find you two emails the first lashawn taylor 434 at gmail.com L-A-S-H-A-W-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R 434.gmail.com or at gmail.com, excuse me. Um, the second email is LaShawn, L-A-S-H-A-W-N at insightgardenprogram.org. Thank you. We will have both of those um, in the show notes. Oh, just 
thank you for the work you're doing. I'm so grateful that you came into my life, you know, um, for context, Jamala and I um, connected through the Coaching for Healing Justice and Liberation a program that we are both part of this uh, the same cohort. If you're interested in more information about that, head back a few episodes um, where that's the title of our episode, Healing for uh, Coaching for Healing, Justice, and Liberation. Amazing program under the leadership of Sarah and Damon. So um, we, we are connected in our determination to continue to bring relationality and humanity to to all people and so Jamala thank you for being here with me today thank you so much for the platform you're doing a wonderful job this is spectacular I can't wait to share this with my family (laughs) yes 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 thank you I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel who provides the music for my labors of love podcast to my producer Jay Sugg from instant classic media and as always you my guest I love y'all are my guests I always do that my listeners I love y'all um y'all know I think a little while back I told you that we you know had hit 50,000 uh streams we are all the way up to 52,000 and still climbing so um it takes intentionality to tune into the podcast you don't just happen to go by it so I thank you for tuning in don't forget we're on all the major social media platforms if you have suggestions for content or guests hit me up at www.thelaborsoflove.com um and share the podcast with your loved ones and your friends until we connect again you all be well